the Dark Side of Therapy. This is Eric Nance, and, and today's a very special day, and I'm, I'm going to gloat a little bit because my guest is in Seattle, Washington. Now, I'm not a Washingtonian, I'm an Oregonian, but it's pretty great to talk to somebody who's actually in the West Coast area. And, and Rachel Turo is an author, recently published this book called The Self-Talk Workout. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's going to be on my list of things to read this year because I love anything that has to do with self-talk, negative self-talk, and maybe working a little too much and expecting a little too much. So that's going to come up in our conversation today. And uh, being a professor and an author and all these different things, Rachel's a very busy person. So thank you so much for joining us on the dark side tonight. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Absolutely. So I want to start with something a little goofy, the self-talk workout. So when I think workout, I think I'm going to have to put some effort into this to make this happen. Can you give us the background of the workout part of this? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that that phrase is sort of out there, the idea of positive self-talk and negative self-talk. And to be honest, I don't really like the phrase positive self-talk because it seems a little too vague to me. Like, mm. what is that? That could just mean like... Tell yourself how wonderful you are all the time or say to yourself that things are always going to go perfectly. And, you know, often they don't. Often they and I also think that the phrase makes it seem like it's super easy. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, have positive self-talk. No problem. But it's like, well, what is that? And, and how do I do it? And the reason that I like the idea of a workout is because in my experience, a lot of people have that intention, that goal of I really want to be nicer to myself. But then how do you move from that wonderful intention to making it happen? And just like a physical workout, you could really intend to, okay, I really want to improve my cardiovascular fitness. And that's a fantastic intention. Yes, but you is. probably have to do some things to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And the brain or the mind seems to be quite similar. In one of the articles that you wrote, and I love this, you talked, to, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but you talked about the idea of you don't have to wait for things to be right to jump into something. You can just start. And I thought that that is such a great thing because I do the same thing and I watch my clients do it. I call them out for doing it, but I'm doing the same thing. Uh, same with my supervisees. Oh, just get in and do something. But I find myself, Rachel, waiting until that perfect time because it's not going to be great unless it's the perfect time. And what you're writing about sort of dispels that, that if we can just jump in and start something, the results are gonna be pretty good. Absolutely, and I have undergraduate students as well, and mm -hmm. you know, undergrads are really the procrastination professionals, right? <laughs> they don't wanna yes. do their stuff, and it seems really hard to get going. So getting that message out there that you don't have to wait to feel motivated. Mm -hmm. In fact, it seems really strange, but motivation can arise out of the action. So instead of really waiting to feel like starting that paper, like you really have to be in that zone and that creativity place, instead just take yourself however you are in the moment and just think, maybe I can write one word. What about two words? If you kind of start with these small, um, you know, mini warm-ups, then it's likely that it gets you into the zone. So you don't have to be in the zone first, start the action, and then the zone often follows. What a foreign concept. 
Because I don't think most of us think about it that way, right? We think about, again, the conditions have to be right to take a vacation, to do self-improvement, to really do anything. You're saying, if I heard you right, motivation can occur just simply getting engaged in the thing that you're doing. That's right. It often follows the action. So motivation can come from the action. And that is so important when we are working with depressed folks. Yes. Right? Because you know depression. It's hard to do anything. It's hard to get going. And if you wait to feel like it, well, you're never going to feel like it when you're depressed. You don't feel like doing anything. Right. So if you can kind of explain this to patients and say, you know, this is about doing things even when you don't feel like it. You don't want to socialize. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to do anything. And I'm going to encourage you to push yourself anyway as an experiment. What happens if you if you do some of these things that you've been avoiding because you don't feel like it and force yourself to do them within reason? You know, you don't have to go nuts, but right, right, push right, yourself right. a little bit in an encouraging, kind way. You can do this. You can get up. You can get out the door for five minutes. Doesn't have to be five hours, but just get your foot out the door and see what it's like to do those things, even if you don't feel like it first. And this leads us into the evaluation that you talk about in the literature you've written, which is we're, we're, we're kind of bad about that. We, we didn't do enough today or, or we should have had more accomplished. And I like how you focus more on the, the quality of what you do and that it doesn't have to be the rat race of what did I accomplish because boy, do I get stuck in that. And I, I didn't even real you know how you do stuff, but you don't realize it until somebody's written it. It's like, oh, geez, somebody wrote about that. Now I, now I can see it. Because I totally do that. I, I think, well, I didn't do enough today. And it is a very mindless way to go about life. And my supervisees are the same way, so they're doing it. So that really struck me that I evaluate a lot. And I'm glad there's someone like you saying, you don't have to do that. You don't have to evaluate in that very self-critical way. Because I'm pretty sure that's a root cause of depression too, feeling like you don't measure up. Absolutely, Eric. I agree with that. And, you know, I think that most of us are kind of caught in that. It's really our conditioning as a culture, right? We want to be productive, we want to produce, um, and we want to accomplish things. And we're kind of um, conditioned to think that way. And, you know, to some degree, that can be really helpful, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you see your classmates graduating or getting a job, and you want to do those things too. And okay, well, so some of that can be helpful. But the downside is that it's never enough, right? Mm -hmm. There's no day that I'm like, I accomplished 100% of everything I've ever wanted. That just, that doesn't happen. But we don't want to feel crummy every day. And so what's the alternative of living in that state of constant evaluation? I think part of it can involve balancing. So not just paying attention to what you haven't done, But I like this one skill called spot the success, a form of cognitive reappraisal Mm -hmm. where instead of a to-do list, you make sure to have a done list that you pay attention to. Can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. So there's this um, method that I like called spot the success where you list 10 things that you've done today that have contributed in a positive way to your life, to somebody else's life, or to the world. And the catch is there's no item too small. People kind of get stuck like, oh, I can only think of, you know, two things or three things. But, you know, if you stop and think a minute, more usually come to you. So 
you know, did you get out of bed? Yeah, I did that. Okay. Right. Um, let's see. Did you uh, take a vitamin or your medication? Did you send an email or a text? And, you know, there's, there's really no item too small and it's easy to discount them. So when I first kind of introduced this exercise, people are like, ah, but that's just basic. I had to do that. You know, that's no big deal. But I think the problem then is that a lot of the energy that we're putting out there, we fail to appreciate and we play that down and then we pay more attention to all the ways we don't measure up. Right. Yeah. I, so as you're saying all this, it's tough because you're a therapist too. So it, it, there, there's sort of a wonderful symbionts happening here where I'm reflecting and it, it, it's an ugly part of myself. And I, and I know that. I think I came from a very evaluative family upbringing where, where you talk about the small stuff, I never look at it. Uh, like having my coffee in the morning, that's a whole little process by itself. I never think about that as a reward. Um, but, but I will now because that's what gets me going. And if that gets me to work, it has sort of a bigger purpose than I'm probably giving credit to. So we're speaking to the young clinicians and, and, and the kids that are in school waiting to graduate who are, you know, these are the people that you teach. And so as we talk about these things, the, the term imposter syndrome comes up a lot. I, I hear that a lot. And I'm wondering, can we fit the imposter syndrome idea in what you're teaching and doing? Or how might that fit into what you are teaching and doing? Well, I think that the imposter syndrome often reflects this idealized image. Mm -hmm. This is who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. This is who I would have to be good to be good enough. And I, I'm not that. So then clearly I'm an imposter. I'm not even real. I don't even really belong here because I'm not that um, paragon of perfection that I always imagined myself to be to qualify for this position or even right. to deserve to be providing therapy to another human when I haven't don't have all of life figured out. <laughs> I mean, that's a really tough thing. You know what my supervisees say to me, Rachel? They say things like, well, I haven't earned the right to feel mm -hmm. that way. I haven't earned the right. What do, you, what do you say to somebody, student or supervisee, when they say, well, I haven't earned the right to do that. I need to keep evaluating or I, I, I need to keep doing something to prove to myself or my agency that I'm worthy. What do we say to these kids? I say kids because I'm older, but... Well, when it comes to clinical skills, there are different perspectives and techniques and information that we can learn about, but there's a certain amount that we bring to the room just by being a caring, present human being. Yeah. So I think that's one of the most important things to remember, that if you can go into a room with another person and communicate that you're really deeply listening and you care about that person, that's a big start. And that's really where all this comes from. Everything else is just something, you know, another dimension on support of that foundation. So that's the foundation that if people can really try to stay rooted in that, okay, I'm a human who cares about this other human. Right. You've already got that before you even set foot in your training program. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good point. Now this is a passion of yours and that and that comes through. I mean that comes and that came through when we talked a couple weeks ago too. Where did this passion of yours come from, Rachel? What was the genesis of this for you? 
Well, you know, actually, I think there are a few different paths that sort of led me to this place. Um, one was kind of um, all of my own intense self-criticism. I mean, this was kind of my major mental spot that I lived in was, you know, evaluating myself and feeling bad about myself. That was just daily, hourly, just part of my mind. And then I think um, working in the clinical realm, trying to help other folks, I noticed that self-criticism was present a lot. And when you're learning how to provide therapy, it's often viewed as part of depression, right? We all know that feeling bad about yourself and worthless and feeling self-critical, okay, that's a common symptom of depression. But what surprised me was over the past 20 years providing clinical work, it was actually a part of almost everything. All the folks I felt with, met with, I mean, not everybody, okay, but many, 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 the vast majority of the patients I sat with really felt bad about themselves and bad about their own thoughts and feelings so that we almost couldn't get to the stuff that they came in for because they felt so bad about having those thoughts and feelings in the first place, you know, apologizing for crying, feeling I shouldn't feel this way. I want to get rid of my anxiety. I shouldn't feel anxious or I should be able to snap out of this depression. Mm -hmm. And that layer of self-criticism just seemed to make everything worse. And then I got really curious as a research scientist, nerd person, and I started kind of getting into the literature. And even though it sort of sounds like Self-talk really has a sort of woo-woo flavor, right? Like pop psychology, not really serious, like the serious mental health literature. But there's actually plenty of very serious medical and psychological literature on the connection between self-criticism making anxiety worse, making trauma worse, making stress worse. Self-criticism seems to make everything worse. It's linked with self-harm, with suicide, with eating disorders, with addictions. And then I was really thinking, well, why why wasn't I really taught about self-criticism if it's linked with all of these different yeah. mental health challenges? Right, right. Yeah, I'm same with me. I was never taught this stuff. I think they throw it at you in little chunks, maybe. But, you know, if you miss class that day, it's not coming back. But I, I'm sure that's what happened to me. But I think it's pretty important. And I know this because, as we've talked about, listening to my own self-talk and knowing what it can do, it, it, it can ruin a day. Um, it's very powerful stuff. And, and so the fact, again, that we're talking about it, I think, is so important. Because we do live in a culture that's all about evaluation. You know, I, I think about this in the therapy that I do, Rachel, in the, in the supervision. We're, we're taught to compare ourselves from a very early age. I remember being... I think I was in kindergarten, and you had this chart, behavior chart thingy that everybody could see. But here's what was striking, is that you could see how bad the other kids were doing in comparison to you. So this was impressed to me at like age six. So that's very, very powerful stuff. I don't know if schools do that as much these days, but it's this idea that we tell people don't compare, but it's really one of the first things that we do. And obviously comparison is going to lead to self-talk because I'm not as good as you, um, I could say, you've got a PhD, I've got a master's, you're better. I mean, we could play that game. But again, I think it's not by accident that we arrive at that perspective. I agree with you. I mean, it's everywhere, right? There's um, beauty pageants, um, other types of you know television competitions, singing, yes. uh, dancing with the stars. I mean, we're just this competitive form of entertainment. And then, of course, absolutely, in school, I mean, we know who's getting better grades than us or who's performing better at sports. This is all very 
clear. And then we internalize it, right? We take it in as this way of being, okay, well, where do I rank? And then, of course, that's always changing depending on your environment. And it's an unpleasant way to, I think, to be in the world. And then in a very well-meaning way, that that self-esteem movement in the 80s was all about, okay, well, kids are feeling bad about themselves. Let's just tell them they're wonderful all the time. Right. But that turned out not to work so well because it's still evaluative. It's still, okay, I'm good, I'm smart, and how am I measuring that? What's the evidence? Whereas um, alternative ways of being kind and encouraging to yourself, like, um, you know, training friendliness to really treat yourself in this friendly, kind way. Okay, well, you made a mistake. That's really human. That's normal. Okay, those bad feelings are there. How can I support myself? Those types of mental habits aren't dependent on assessing how wonderful you are. And I should have clarified too that for Spot the Success, it's really meant to be a list that is just appreciative rather than evaluative. You're not saying, how well did I get out of bed? Or how were those emails that I sent? Um, You're just noticing, I completed this action. Mm -hmm. I did do that. I'm going to guess that your students really dig those kinds of strategies. Well, um, they do, but sometimes not at first. And with self-criticism, sometimes I come up against this real skeptical, kind of cynical um, shell, which, you know, self-criticism can kind of seem like your best friend. People Mm -hmm. think it's motivating. It's sharp. It keeps me accountable. Otherwise, I would just, you know, laze about all day in my bathrobe. But I don't really... You know, once again, you can turn to the evidence showing that self-criticism is actually associated with less motivation, whereas self-encouragement is associated with more motivation. And you could kind of see if you're trying to do something hard, criticizing yourself while you're making that effort isn't going to work so well as, you know, you're writing your term paper and saying, okay, well, you finished a paragraph. How about another one? You can do it. Oh, you need some water. That's okay. And being kind and encouraging, it's not saying, okay, well, just forget the paper, don't do anything you don't want to do, you're still kind of going to do the actions in line with your goals. But I think people are initially sort of reluctant. And some of the exercises might seem a little bit corny at first. So students are sort of resistant. So what I hear a lot is, you know, I didn't want to do spot the success. It seems silly. I, these things are just small items that uh, are no big deal. But actually, after I did it three or four times, I noticed that it made me feel a little bit better about my day, even if I'd had a hard day or didn't feel good. So sometimes I hear that initial skepticism and then a reflection that, hey, I didn't think this was gonna help me, but it kind of did. But it but it did. I'm gonna, have you heard of the book called, I, I believe the title is Surrender the Outcome. Oh, I don't know that one. I wish I could name the author, doggone it. it but it's, it's the best book and the whole idea is again, yeah, for, forget about the outcome, just do the stuff and let the outcome take care of itself. I'm, 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 I'm thinking about that book as we're talking, not that they're the same flavor, but there's certainly some similarities here. Um, and again, part of it is there's sort of a letting go process. And uh, I like the idea of not evaluating myself. Um, because again, I've done it for so long and I, I know it's not a good thing. Uh, sorry, we had a screen pop. I can't see you anymore. Oh, oh I can see you. 
Is there anything to be done? I I, I, I wasn't sure why this book came up, but okay. Uh, Brooke Cups, that's who wrote it. Thank you. So so here's what this will be. This will be an imperfect moment in the episode that we can come back to. Because I was looking like, why is that coming up here? So yeah, Brooke Cups, uh, author of Surrender the Outcome. Um, I think every student should read it. I think every uh, new clinician should read it. Because the idea, again, is that... (laughs) If I can surrender the outcome, I'm not putting all this effort into the achievement, which again, I think speaks very clearly to what you're talking about too. Uh, it, it's hard to let go because we like good outcomes. We want things to work out the way we want them to. And you know this, Rachel, they don't. They rarely ever come out the way we think they will. And I think there's some real value in understanding they're never gonna work out that way. And if we can sort of let that go, uh, to me, that's healing freedom. Um, I agree with you. We can't always have the outcome that we want. There are just too many unpredictable factors in life. But what we can develop is the capacity to be kinder and more supportive to ourselves in any circumstance. And building that capacity translates into any environment. Not that, you know, trauma and stress don't matter. They absolutely do. Some situations are just going to feel awful no matter what. But I really like... um, that quote um, by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, when we know how to suffer, we suffer much, much less. Mm-hmm. So I would like less suffering. And there are some very well-worn paths uh, from people who have walked them before of, okay, how do we create um, mental habits that lead to less suffering? And why not put that effort in? And and yeah, self-talk workout, it's going to involve some effort, but it doesn't have to be horrible. We're not talking about hours and hours a day. Right, it's just right. that the habits we have now, I mean, we, we've built them up over years and decades, mostly unintentionally. So if we want new habits, it might take a little bit of conscious effort, again, just a few minutes a day to practice some new habits to um, change up the old ones. Sort of like mindfulness in that way. It, it's something that it's tough to get into, but when you do it, it really does pay dividends. Um, so I, I, yeah, I absolutely see that. You have a lot of compassion, and uh, I appreciate that about you. That really shows through. Uh, you you talk to people that do supervision work or they teach, and, and you sort of get the people that just get it. You know, I, talking with you, I'm guessing, is not a whole lot different than when you're talking to a student. You're compassionate. You you listen. You are not afraid. I'm guessing to be vulnerable, uh, and maybe even God forbid, share a mistake or two with the people you teach or supervise. I think we have that in common, and I really applaud you for that because I don't think nearly enough people in the field are doing that. I think vulnerability is something to be so afraid of, and the things we're talking about tonight are really about understanding self, if you really think about it. And and so that's why I like what you're doing. You're helping these people understand themselves. And it can be scary. It can be scary to understand, boy, these patterns aren't helpful. But I'm glad that you're doing it because I'm doing the same thing because I think the truth is okay. It's it's scary. It, It doesn't always deliver us the goods, but there's a lot of freedom in that. And yes, it comes from my compassion too. So I, I thank you so much for really capitalizing on your compassion in nature. Rachel, that's huge. Well, likewise, Eric, I can absolutely see that in you and your generosity in um, helping young mental health professionals. Because, you know, I think that 
it's easiest to access where we are now. And after you do this kind of work for 10 or 20 years, we're in a different place than when we just started. But this past weekend, I had the opportunity to go back to my graduate school for a graduate school reunion in Eugene, Oregon. And, you know, so many memories, good and bad of, um, you know, being 24 years old and starting graduate school, really not knowing how clinical work was going to go. Right. And um, just kind of processing this with my other friends uh, and colleagues who were there. And we talked about having compassion for our younger selves because Mm -hmm. it was sort of scary and we didn't really know what we were doing. And some of the training that we received, we didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. And that's a really tough spot to be in, right? Yes, 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 yes. I agree completely. And I think... (laughs) If we can look at our experiences and and say, here's what I don't want to do, because that's how I look at every supervisor I ever had, Rachel. I'm, I'm going to take the best of what I got and all the horrible things anybody ever said or did to me. I know to avoid that. And, and I think we, we can capitalize on that stuff. So thank you for bringing that up. And thank you for shouting out to Eugene, my Oregon Ducks. Uh, I, I won't even get into that right now, but thank you for that flashbulb memory. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I'd love to have you back on at some point. Um, these kinds of dialogues are so meaningful because you're a therapist, because you're an author, because you're somebody that's doing the work I believe in. Uh, it just means a lot to me to have you here. So again, thank you for your time tonight. And the book is The Self-Talk Workout. I'm going to get my copy. We'll have you come back on perhaps, and then we can talk about the book straight up. Sounds wonderful. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I really admire the work you're doing. Rachel, likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks.